another great episode, this time with probably our most famous guest of the season, my college soccer teammate and now New York Times bestselling author, Clint Smith. What'd you think? I thought it was great. I was taking notes the whole time, and there was a whole bunch of questions I wanted to ask that I just didn't end up asking uh, just because of time, but it's a great interview. Yeah, I think you actually asked the most questions of any of any guests so far this season. I, it seemed like you you could have could have kept going. Definitely. I think there's. I mean, this conversation was really interesting because Clint is somebody that I obviously know from from college, and and certainly he's had a, a lot of commercial success with his most recent book, How the Word Has Passed, which obviously we we talk plenty about. But what I really enjoyed was hearing his approach to the work and especially as a professional writer it's just such a foreign world to me but I really enjoyed hearing him talk about what makes a project meaningful how he gets value from it how he sort of validates it as something that's important to himself as an audience of one first and it's almost like this podcast right I would have been happy if my mom was the only listener and Clint says if he wrote his book and his mom was the only reader, he would have been happy too. So I think we're, we're, both, we're both lucky that uh, our moms are fan, fans of our work, but that's probably where the comparisons between Clint, Clint and I end, unfortunately, for me. <laughs> cool. Well, with that, let's get to our conversation with Clint Smith. I thought I was going to be the next Thierry Henry. I have my Arsenal jerseys on the wall. haven't been perfect with that in all 10 episodes and so it makes sense that we weren't perfect again today like to welcome in to this week's episode of unzipped new york times best-selling author wow we can say that now right clint smith what's going on man clint thanks for being here man and i know you're a a busy man on on all kinds of speaking circuits and everything else so appreciate you making time for our, our little old podcast here no, it's uh, it's it's a pleasure. I'm excited for the for the convo. I'm excited to catch up. Yeah, for sure. Um, the the way that I like these conversations to go is, I really want to get to know you better. You know, I I feel like I obviously know you well from our playing days as as teammates and students at Davidson together, but I don't want to just ask you about being a best selling author right off the bat because. Everyone knows you as a best-selling author now. You've got hundreds of thousands of followers and all these different platforms and everything else. But I'm more interested in kind of how you how you got there and, and the the elements that sort of shaped you to, to, to get where you are now. So I wanted to start actually with poetry hmm. because that feels like the first instance I saw of you as someone with a voice and with... A perspective to share. Mm. So I wanted to just ask you when you first got into poetry. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on which iteration or, or which sort of point in life um, you consider the beginning. I mean, because I remember in third grade, I uh, had a teacher who assigned us to write a poem, and she was like, you know, write a poem about a color, um, like any color, and 
most kids wrote about their favorite color, um, but I wrote about the color gray because like I was a weird, strange um, child. And very, I remember the poem. It's, it was very emo of me before I had the language for it. I was like, let me let me get in touch with like my emotional uh, relationship to to time and space and the weather and. Maybe I did it because it was rainy, <laughs> rainy outside. Um, what, did, what, did the other, what did the other third graders think of that? You know, I think there are some things that we keep to ourselves, right? Because we're not, we, we <laughs> aren't ready to to delve into that level of emotional depth with the other the other eight year olds. I got you. Um, nah, I mean, I think it, it was. I remember the poem though, um, and it wasn't that deep. It was, but I do remember how it goes. It was. Um, I hate the color gray. It reminds me of a rainy day. Gray, I really hate that color. It's annoying like my little brother. Um, and I don't know how that <laughs> has stayed with me all these years. I think maybe I found it in the in the attic like years ago. Um, but I always remember my teacher came up to me and she was like going around the class and looking over kids' shoulders and reading their poems. And she came over and she put her hand on my shoulder and she looked over and read the poem and she was like, Clint, that's beautiful. You can be a writer when you grow up. And for all I know, she might have told that to every single kid in the room. She might have forgotten that she said that as soon as she, you know, passed me. Um, but I remembered that for the rest of my life. Um, not always actively, but I think it would it was always sort of sitting there in the back of my head and sometimes would sort of move to the front of my head when I was reminded of the power of that moment. And, you know, I want you can't trace a direct line from that moment to me being uh becoming a writer but i think it's impossible to disentangle the fact that this person opened up a a, a set a of step. possibilities right yeah. that that made me cognizant that this was something that could be done from the fact that i'm um i'm able to make a life of of words and ideas now and so there's that but i think the more modern version of it is that in 2008 uh, summer 2008, I went to the New Yorican Poets Cafe in New York City, um, which is like this legendary poetry cafe on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I had an internship at a publishing company that summer in New York. And I remember my friend who was a fellow intern, she was like, yo, let's go to the New Yorican Poets Cafe. And I was like, the what a what? Like, what is that? Like, nah, let's go see Mission Impossible 3. Like, what are you talking about? Um, and she was like, shut up. Let's go to, we're going to the New Yorican. And we went. And two different elements of, of culture there. Two different, two very different elements of culture. I mean, I was really about that that Tom Cruise life, and so I was I was trying to go see Mission Impossible in a big New York City theater. For me, that's what because this was the first summer that I lived away from home, and so I was like, well, I guess other than other than college, right? But like living in a city by yourself, um, and I was like, this is freedom. Friday night, going to like a New York City movie, um, but uh, that was a very 19 year old way of, of thinking about what liberation looks like in that front. Um, and we went to the New Yorican and it was uh, one of the most remarkable things I've ever experienced in my life. It was just this room full of people, young people, black people, brown people, queer people, people with disabilities, people who looked all sorts of ways that did not look like what I had for so long been told poetry and poets look like. Um, I remember the first person, the first poem I heard was a woman who got on stage and did a poem about having cerebral palsy. And in three minutes, 
she did this poem in the way I thought about an entire demographic of people completely changed, right, after hearing this poem. And and it was, I'd never been so viscerally moved by art as I had been that night. And I left that night never thinking about disability the same way again. And I also left and I was like, I don't know what this is, but I want to do it. And so then I went back to Davidson where, and we were talking before the we started recording, um, where like I was experiencing my own sort of like 18, 19 year old existential crisis because we were on the soccer team together, uh, but I didn't get a lot of playing time. And this thing that had defined me for so much of my life, like Clint, the soccer player, being good at soccer, like that's where I got a sense of value, a sense of purpose, a sense of self. And suddenly it felt like that was taken away from me because I wasn't, I wasn't playing. And so I was in this moment where I had to, I had to really try to figure out who I was off the soccer field. Um, and suddenly I found this space that, that allowed me to channel a lot of my uh, creative, but also competitive energy because there's, this was like the poetry slam community. So you like do a poem and you get scores, um, which like, you know, on some level is like a reductive way to think about art, but is also a really incredible entry point for a lot of people into the art form. And, and I just became obsessed with it. And I came back to Davidson and I like, you know, told, I remember being in the locker room and telling like AJ and Michelle, like, yo, I'm going to be a poet. And they're like, what? Like, shut up. Um, and, and I just, I just, I started the poetry group at Davidson, um, started going to Charlotte all the time, uh, for, to go to their slams and open mics and, uh, and yeah, just kind of took all the energy that I'd spent, you know, the last, what, 12, 13 years of my life focused on soccer and, and kind of reoriented it toward, toward writing and toward poetry, um. And I wrote a lot of bad poems for a very long time. I still write a lot of bad poems. Um, I just don't, you know, those are the poems you have to write in order to get to the poems that you eventually share with the world. But, but yeah, I just, I just became obsessed with it and fell in love, kind of fell in love all over again with language and literature. And um, it really broke open my ideas of like what poetry could be. Yeah, that's, it's such an interesting story to hear you tell it, especially starting with the color gray, <laughs> you know, and obviously, like you said, it's not, it's not a straight line to obviously being a writer and, you know, being paid to put your words together on a page. But I'm wondering when in that journey, I'm guessing probably closer to the 18, 19 year old Clint, but when in that journey you started to realize that you were good at this, not just that it felt good or that it was a way of self-expression, but that you were actually good at it. It's one of those things where like, it's, it's tough to say retroactively because when I was, when I was doing it and when I was new at it, I thought I was, I thought I was really good at it. Right. Like I was like, oh, man, these poems are bangers. Right. Like I'm killing it live Thursday. I'm like, you know, people are like go Clint at the free word end of semester shows. People, you know, we're like getting a packed house like the energy was crazy. It was just it was, you know, I was part of this group of people who were writing and trying to figure out the world through writing and trying to figure out our ourselves and our relationship to the world through writing. And the things that we were creating 
in that moment, you know, in 2008, 2009, 2010, felt felt like, you know, I was like, man, we're writing some some incredible stuff. I look back at that po- those poems now. I, I actually don't even look back at them now because it's too hard to look back at them because I think they're so terrible. Um, and I mean, part of that is just growth, right? I think part of that is if in, in any art form, you have a lot of people who look back at uh, things that they created when they were first entering the art form, things they created, you know, years ago, and they can, you can have a difficult time engaging with those those works and those pieces of art, uh, because they, it feels like where you are now in terms of your, you know, how you create the work, but also in terms of your sensibilities, in terms of your, your, your politics, um, the, the nature of, of the work doesn't necessarily stand the test of time. Um, but on the other end, I also think that's okay, because I think that part of what's cool about poems are that in some ways they serve as these these sort of time capsules to capture like who you were and how you thought about the world at these different moments in time. And so, you know, if I wanted to, if I wanted to, I could look back at, you know, one of the videos on YouTube from one of our free word shows in 2009 and see like, well, how was like, how was 20 year old Clint? thinking about the world, like what were his concerns? What were his fears? What were his interests? Um, and I think that that's a really beautiful thing. You know, I never, I never journaled or had a diary, but, but poetry has kind of become the closest thing that I, I do have that to that because, um, you know, again, these poems are like capturing how I'm thinking about the world and, and things that I'm wrestling with at different periods of time. So that's a long way of saying, you know, I, <laughs> I thought I was good at it, you know, in, you know, when I was starting uh, and taking it seriously in 2008, 2009. And I think you might have had many people. I'm, look, I'm just going to say, I thought you were good too, Clint. You I, to, I appreciate it. I appreciate you know. it. I don't know if that's just because there weren't a lot of us doing it. And, you know, it was my, there wasn't a lot of uh, competition, but, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think it was. I think I was excited by finding this thing that was both that both served as an opportunity for me to wrestle with like questions in big and small um, to try to figure out what I think about those things. Because the thing I like about poems is that poems don't necessarily you can ask a question in a poem. And you don't have to find the answer, right? Like the, the the poem itself can just be the wrestling with the question. And you might begin with one question and end the poem with another question. And the other thing that poetry does is it forces you to pay attention. It forces you to pay attention to the exterior world. It forces you to pay attention to your own interior self. It forces you to pay attention to a feeling, a moment, uh, uh, a, a period of, of time, uh, an image. And... And I, I really valued finding that space and specifically in the nature of performance poetry and slam and spoken word was like that being part of a community, right? Like it, it, so much of the writing world is, is, uh, it's very solitary, 
and and you do your work in isolation. Um, but this type of specific literary space that we were cultivating at Davidson and that's been cultivated, you know, in bars and open mics and slams all across this country for decades now, uh, is built on community, right? It's built on teams. It's built on people being in a shared space and like affirming one another as they, you know, tackle these, these big questions about the world through their art. Yeah. What, what did that do for you in, in your, in your journey, having that community? I mean, it's, it's almost cliche to talk about how literature like expands your perspective um, and it gives you empathy. But the thing I really valued about our, our group at Davidson uh, is that we had so many different types of people. I mean, racially, uh, ethnically, in terms of national background, in terms of um, interests. I mean, we had physics majors, we had English majors, we had econ majors, we had people from Peru, we had people from Brazil, we had people from Georgia, we had people from Pennsylvania, we had, you know, black, white, Asian, um, all different sorts of political sensibilities. And and it was really, I mean, it kind of goes back to that moment that I, you know, heard that poem by that woman who had um, cerebral palsy. And and it just expanded my understanding and my empathy for people with disability, uh, with disabilities in a way that, you know, no, no article or memo or, um, you know, one pager ever could. It was, there was something different about it. And, and I think I was, um, I got to experience that on a weekly basis with the folks at Davidson um, because they were, you know, every time we got together, people would share new work and, and it would expand my understanding of, of both who they are, um, but also uh, give me a new set of perspectives about a whole range of issues that I may have thought about a lot or may never have thought about ever. Um, and I think that literature at its best it serves as both, uh, it can serve as a mirror, right? Where somebody gets up and and shares a poem that speaks to how you've been feeling about something, but you never had the language or words to say it yourself. Or it can be uh, a window, right? And giving you insight into uh, and a view of a set of perspectives in a world that um, you might, other, might not otherwise have. Uh, and I think that it was doing both of those things for me in a time, you know, when you're in college, it's such a formative time in your life generally. Um, and I think having that space um, was really crucial um, to me developing like, you know, uh, and a, a, a sort of empathic muscle um, and, and having that, you know, helping that lay the foundation for, you know, how I would try to move through the world. Um, yeah. You know, in I mean, my adult I, life. I, I definitely want to ask you about the empathy stuff, uh, specifically as it relates to some of the challenging conversations that you have and discuss in how the word is passed. But I kind of want to get there in a little bit because I wanted to ask you as you as you started to practice poetry and 
share poetry and develop your skill set further with this community and, and, and beyond, obviously past Davidson as well. Was there a, a time when you realized beyond the window and mirror that you described, which I think is more of a, a personal, I hope I'm summarizing this accurately from your point of view, but I think more of a personal take, right, of how it affected you or how it might affect another individual. But I'm wondering if there was ever a moment or a time when you realized, wow, these words and these poems and these perspectives can have an impact on other people in a, in a, in a meaningful way beyond just my own personal personal growth. Mm, like in the sense that like my, my work and my poems can impact people. Yeah, I guess maybe put more simply, like when did you know that your poetry or the perspectives you were sharing mattered and mm. they were moving people? I mean, I think people just shared that with me, right? Like people shared it with me in the same way that I, I tried to share it with, with the people whose poems did that for me. Um, and that's, I mean, that was really meaningful. Um, and it's, it's an amazing feeling to, to get on stage and share a poem and share a piece of yourself, uh, and then have someone come up to you and say that, that it changed the way they thought about something, or it affirmed the way that they thought about something, or it made them think about something with, uh, a new, a new set of perspectives or with more nuance or, um, through a different lens than they, than they had before. Um, and that's, you know, that's an exciting thing for sure. I mean, I think I'm also always sort of wary of that being the end goal, whether it's a poem that I was writing in 2010 or, you know, how the word is passed in 2021. If you're, if the goal of your writing is to change people's minds, it just, that's just a, it's an incredibly like tenuous thing. Like it's, it, it, I'm wary of making things, creating goals for art and for writing that are not in, are not in my control, right? Like I don't actually control how anybody is going to respond to a book or to a poem and for me, you know, when I think about the audience of any work that I create, it ha I have to be the first audience, right? Like it has to be for me, like I wrote how the word is passed, not so that I could write something that I hoped would change people's minds. I mean, that's, that is an added bonus for sure. You know, that, that people, you know, have written to me and said that this has expanded their understanding of American history or has changed the way they think about American history or has given them a a broader set of uh, perspectives with which to make sense of the society around us. I mean, that's, that's amazing. I, I can't, I feel so lucky to have created something that helps people think differently about the world in a positive way. But that's not the goal from the outset. The goal was I had a set of questions that I wanted to answer for myself, right? I had a moment where I recognized that I did not understand the history of slavery in this country in any way that was commensurate to the actual impact and legacy that it has had on this country. And that I grew up in a town surrounded by Confederate iconography with Confederate you know, street names, with Confederate school names. Um, 
where over a hundred schools, roads, buildings, um, and statues are named after leaders of a group of people who fought a war to preserve chattel slavery. And I was like, I don't actually have the language to understand why these statues are up in the first place, who these men actually are, what they actually stood for. Um, and, and so the project was like, I, I am writing this for myself. I'm researching this for myself. And I, the, the audience and the intended reader in many ways is like a 16 year old version of me trying to like write the sort of book that I felt like I needed when I was in, in my AP us history course that I didn't feel like I had. Um, and I think that's the case with anything that I'm, I'm creating like first and foremost, they are, uh, they're for me. And I think they have to be for you because if you're doing it and creating it for other people, then your sense of like whether or not the project is a success is is going to is really it's like really precarious and and really um and doesn't there's there's not it's something you don't have control over right you don't have control over it's hard to be grounded it's hard to be grounded in that and it's and you and there's no, it's so amorphous, right? Like, what is that? Like, how many people? Like, what is that? What does that look like? What does that mean? Um, whereas I think it's it's much better for me. I can only speak for me to to say I'm writing this for me. And even if the only person who reads it is my mom, then it's okay, right? Like, because I will have been, I will have grown from the the four years that it took to write and think about and wrestle with these questions. And I, and I felt really good. One, one of the reasons I feel so good about how the word is passed is because I did feel that way. I like, wrote this book and I was like, I feel, I really enjoyed the process of writing it because I learned so much about the world and about myself. Yeah. That was, that was going to be my next question, but you already answered it of just, did you accomplish, did you accomplish that goal? But it sounds like you did. Yeah. I mean, I, the thing is I could have, you know, I've worked on this book from, 2017 to 2021 I could have I kept going you know like I, I could have kept researching I could have kept traveling to different places I could have kept having these conversations with different people even now I mean the, the book has been more successful than I could have ever imagined you know in my wildest dreams I could have never imagined that it would be received in the way that it has and there's still a part of me that's like oh man I wish I had been able to go to this place and write a chapter on that. Or I wish I had been able to go to this place and write a chapter on that. Or I wish I had a little bit more time um, to do that. I mean, part of what happened is the pandemic came and, you know, I just couldn't go anywhere anymore. And so I was like, all right, well, it's time to, time to write this thing up. You uh, might as well write a New York Times bestseller. <laughs> than I <read. laughs> No, I, I love it. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, it strikes me though, the way that you talk about this, that you view this book the the same way that you view, you know, 18, 19-year-old Clint's poems, mm. third grade Clint's poems, right? Th- those, those were all for you too, mm-hmm. you know? And I think what's changed is that the world around you has validated in a way that what's good for Clint Smith, audience of one, is also probably good for many thousands of people who are also interested in what you have to say. And, and that's the dream, you know, I mean, like that's, it doesn't get better than, 
writing something to answer or wrestle with a set of questions that you have. Um, and then for other people to come and say, hey, I'm wrestling with those same questions. And and the book ultimately is, you know, it, it is not written as uh, a treatise or, or, a, or sort of a polemic or a, a didactic text that's attempting to say, like, you, these are things you should know and and uh, if you don't know them, something's wrong with you. No, the book is is me saying, man, there's a lot about the history of this country that I didn't begin to even understand until I was an adult. And like, why is it that I'm a PhD student learning about these things that I should have learned in my eighth grade social studies class? And this is me going to these places and trying to bring the reader along on on the journey with me, right? It's like we are, you are coming on this trip with me, um, but you're also coming on like an intellectual journey with me where we are trying, we are collectively, you know, going from place to place and having conversations with these people and, you know, encountering the scholarship and digging into the archives and saying, how do all of these things fit together to explain why America looks the way that it does today? Um, and I wanted you know, people to recognize that this book wasn't written by a person who began this project as an expert on this subject matter, um, but that it was written by someone who wanted to learn more about it through the writing of this book. Just, just like a good poem, you start start with a question and explore the question. I go. love it. I I wanted to ask you because you you said the word empathy a couple of times, and. I, I'm still actually reading the book, so I feel like a unprepared podcast host that I haven't completed the book. But one of the things that stands out to me is you're having these discussions with with groups of people who still hold up these Confederate icons as bastions of something positive and. I wanted to ask you about those conversations because it strikes me as an intensely challenging thing to hold space. I, I, actually, I'm not even going to describe it. You describe it. Like, what what was it like to have those conversations? I guess. Yeah. So, for folks listening, the the context is that one of the chapters is about a place called Blandford Cemetery, um, which is one of the largest Confederate cemeteries in the country. It's where the remains of 30,000 Confederate soldiers are buried, and it's in Petersburg, Virginia. And I went there uh, during the Sons of Confederate Veterans Memorial Day celebration. Uh, so as you can imagine, I was a, I was a conspicuous presence, uh, to say the least, at such an event. Um, and it was, it was a, a fascinating and strange and unsettling experience, but also an incredibly clarifying one because I think I saw the contemporary manifestation of the lost cause and, and what it looks like um, and got a better sense of why for so many people, history is not about primary source documents or about empirical evidence. It is about a story they are told and it is a story they that they tell. It's an heirloom that's passed down over generations. It is uh, something in which, you know, loyalty takes precedence over uh, over, over evidence, over fact, in which community and lineage um, are are central to how you understand who you are in relation to the world. 
And so I remember a conversation I had with a guy named Jeff that I talk about in the book. And Jeff is a, you know, he's a son of Confederate, he's a son of the Confederate veterans and uh, was telling me a story about how he used to come to the, uh, the cemetery with his granddad. And he and his granddad would come and they would come sit in this gazebo at the center of the cemetery at dusk. And they would watch the deer sort of, you know, eat grass around each tombstone and watch as the, the fireflies jump from uh, one blade of grass to the next. Like these very sentimental uh, and specific and emotionally evocative moments. And he said, you know, his granddad would sing him the old Dixie anthem and tell him the stories about the men who were buried in this land and how they didn't fight a war to preserve slavery. They fought a war to protect their families. They fought a war to protect Southern culture. They fought a war to uh, push back against Northern aggression. They fought a war to to protect um, their communities and their loved ones. And this is a story that Jeff now tells his granddaughters, right? Who he brings and walks, you know, to in through that same uh, cemetery and sits in that same gazebo and sings the same songs to them that his grandfather sang to him. And so the thing is, if you go to Jeff and you're like, Jeff, actually, I know your granddad told you this, but uh, your granddad told you this other thing, but the Confederacy uh, did fight this war to preserve slavery. They did secede from the Union specifically because of slavery. All you have to do is look at the declarations of Confederate secession. A state like Mississippi in 1861 says, our position is thoroughly aligned with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. All right, quote and unquote. So they are not vague or opaque about why they are seceding from the Union. They are quite clear about it on numerous occasions. Each date is. But for Jeff, it's not a matter of like having to just inconveniently reassess history. If he is to accept that information, then he has to accept that what his grandfather told him was a lie. And if he accepts that what his grandfather told him was a lie, it it creates cracks in the in his understanding of who his grandfather was it it threatens to disintegrate so much of who he believes his grandfather to be and thus threatens to disintegrate so much of the foundation upon which their relationship is built and if the people and if you begin to tell people that the people they love are liars or told them stories that weren't true then it not only becomes uh, a threat to how they understand those people but it also becomes a threat to how they understand themselves it becomes like an edu- an existential crisis where so much of who people believe themselves to be is tied to a very sp- specific set of stories about this country and its history. And once you begin to tell a different story, a fuller story, a more honest story, then you have people who fear, whose, whose identities and whose sense of self and whose sense of who they are in the world is comes under threat. And I think we see a version of that with the whole critical race theory boogeyman that's so central to our political discourse right now, which is that you have millions of people who, because of the Black Lives Matter movement over the course of the past several years, are beginning to understand the history of racism, or are beginning to understand racism is not something that is just an interpersonal phenomenon, but that's a systemic one, a structural one, a historical one. Uh, one that is cannot be understood without the historical and sociological context that gave rise to the inequality that we see today. And so now you have millions more people who, in whose ideas have shifted, and it reflects like a profound shift in our uh, public consciousness around these issues. And because of this shift, 
you feel there are other millions of other people who are experiencing an existential crisis, who are experiencing this feeling that the country they know, the country that they have tied their identities to, that they have tied their sense of self to, that they have tied the story of their family and their community and their neighbors to, that that story is no longer the story that people are telling. And when you tell a different story about the country, then people have to begin to tell a different story about themselves. And that's a scary thing for a lot of people. And so you see people react really intensely um, with a lot of, uh, and often with a lot of venom. Um, and and I think we, you know, part of what it does is enter our political discourse and in our politics in ways that can, uh, that distort you know, are are created with the specific intention to distort what what this history is with the goal of preserving a certain narrative that's more convenient for the story certain people want to tell themselves. I, th- I think you put that in a really succinct and easy to follow way that changing this family heirloom of of goodness, for lack of a better term, you know, that you're descendant from this person who is a good person because of X, Y, Z. But when you poke holes in that and sort of look at the foundation of that and, and, and remove that foundation in some ways with facts, then people can, can seem to feel threatened and, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, as you're alluding to, in terms of how it's showing up in, in the world today. I want. I wanted to ask you how how you approach those actually being present in those conversations, because I'm sure. Obviously, you know, you write about it in the book, but I'm sure that just being present for that type of discussion presents its own challenges, just interpersonally, while you're physically standing there with another person. And so I, I'm curious to hear what your experience was like and how you, what your mindset was, I guess, having those actual discussions with people. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I was cognizant of the fact that if I approached, you know, if I went to a Sons of Confederate Veterans Memorial Day celebration and I went up to people and tried to do this, this gotcha thing or try to or approach them in a in an antagonistic way or in a way that was immediately trying to in real time debunk what they were saying um and make them look stupid or make them look ridiculous one i don't think that that is consistent with the goals of the project um and the sort of sensibilities of of the book which are modeled largely after so many of the guides and docents and uh, descendants and uh, people who who are who lead you know and tell who lead these historical sites and um, do so with so much so much grace and generosity. Um, I wanted the book to to reflect the grace and generosity of so many of the people that that I met and profiled. And so when I'm encountering people who you know are the opposite of um, in terms of disposition and um, 
ideology than, you know, from the people that I met, you know, when I went to Monticello or when I went to Whitney Plantation or when I was in New York. Um, I wanted to extend the same grace and generosity to them that I had seen so many of these tour guides extend to other people. Um, and I just, and just practically, like if you go and you try to play gotcha with some of these folks, they're not going to tell you the truth. Like what I wanted to know, I was genuinely curious and genuinely wanted to understand these people's worldviews. Like, and I, I wanted to understand how you come to believe some of these things that you believe that are so, so clearly untrue, but also so deeply held. Right. And so I think we can, you can mock them. You can make fun of them. You can make them into caricatures of themselves. And, you know, to some people that might feel good, but, but that's not actually going to give you any sort of meaningful information to help understand who these folks are. Right. Cause the thing is, and what I wanted the book to do was like, make sure that these people weren't caricatures, that they are three dimensional people who, who themselves, even as, as wrongheaded as it may be, believe what they're saying. Right. And these, and these are not people who are like caricatures of evil racism. These are people who, you know, are like grandmas and grandpas and aunties and uncles who like take their kids and their grandkids to soccer games, who are part of the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts, who um, go to church, who you see at the grocery store, who drop their post, you know, their envelopes in the in the mail. Like these are these are regular people. And that's I think that's the most important part to to confront is that like these aren't these people on the fringes of society these are people all around us who believe these things and in order to understand why they do believe these things you have to listen right you just you just have to to listen and 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 hear them it strikes me that the nature of the project was a very just one in that what you were searching for was really truth. You know, there is the truth in terms of the facts and all the things that you, you already talked about, but you were searching for truth in understanding how can all of this be true simultaneously, mm. where this, this is what's written, this is what the facts are, but also this is how you feel and this is what you're living and what you're passing down. So it, it strikes me that a very, as a very noble sort of North, North star that, that you were, that you were after. I appreciate it. I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, if you want to understand people, you got to listen to them and you have to give them the space with which to say the things that they believe to be true. And, and I think, you know, part of what I do in that chapter is, is I let the historical documents speak for themselves. Like I don't have to, I don't have to in that moment, you know, necessarily try to refute every single point they make or say that they're wrong or say that, which isn't to say that I'm a neutral or objective observer. Anybody who reads the book will see very clearly that I don't hesitate to share my, my perspective and, what you know my feelings are in any given place like i'm i'm there having conversations with these people and i'm saying it's interesting that this land means this you know is is so sacred to you um 
and and represents this feeling of um of of lineage and family and goodwill when and i'm here and all i see and all i feel are the the ghost of people who fought a war to keep my ancestors enslaved so i'm not i'm not i don't hide that piece of it but that to me is different than coming in and like telling people that what they believe is wrong because then you just create an entirely different dynamic of the conversation um and and you know there's maybe there's a different book that has a different set of goals and and that is um something that helps you reach you know that sort of uh engagement is something that would help you reach that goal but that was not the goal of of this book fair enough i i wanted to ask you now that the book has been received so well and and frankly i i mean who would have known that you would write a New York Times bestseller, but I don't actually think it's that surprising that it's been commercially so successful and so well-received just because I feel like steadily over the last few years, you've had lots of opportunities and moments to be heard and raise your profile and, and, and have work shared with a larger audience. And I'm wondering what you how you view your role, I guess, in the current discourse and what, yeah, really like what position you think you play in, in the current conversation being had. Hmm. I mean, I think that I, I have one perspective to offer. Um, and, you know, there are so many brilliant people out there doing brilliant, incredible work across all different fields, um, all different disciplines, all different mediums uh, who are trying, who are thinking about history, thinking about equity, thinking about race, um, thinking about uh, how the sort of ecosystem of, of all of these things fit together and explain why our country looks the way that it does today and you know what i just wanted to create one i try to let my work speak for itself increasingly so i think even even more so with old older age um like my relationship to social media is different than it used to be um in part because i think like the in some ways like those spaces and you know i'm thinking specifically about twitter right now like i used to be really really active on twitter um because I felt like it was a space to contribute to a, a public discussion. Um, I mean, you were basically the best person to follow during the women's world. <laughs> that was that was my. It was so funny because you'd have people who like uh, would follow me for like all caps tweets during the World Cup, the Women's World Cup, or the Men's World Cup, or um, or random Arsenal games. And then I would. It, it, I remember the 2019 Women's World Cup. I gained like all like. 30,000 new followers or something who were like, look at this super fun sports account. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then they... And then you started surprising them with a bunch of, you know, politically... Oh, man. And then they were like, mass incarceration, content. slavery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, what is... Where's Megan Rapino? Um, yeah, no, it's... Uh, I mean, basically, the... But I, I, used, I just used to be a lot more active um, in part because I think that's where... Uh, 
I think I felt like those the platform was a little bit different and had there was more space to think through ideas out loud and it's just so loud now. I don't know. It's just it's so noisy and so um uh and there's a lack of grace um and generosity that people extend and so it just doesn't I don't you know, if you follow me now it mostly is soccer tweets um because that's like my my safe space on the platform. I'm like, look, I'm going to tweet about Arsenal and US Men's World Cup qualifying and and then, you know, retweet random other stuff. But um, but part of that is because I, I think I feel more comfortable letting my work speak for itself, right? Like I, instead of having to do a Twitter thread about something, I can, if I want to say something, I can just write an article in The Atlantic about it. Uh, you know, I, I said so much about flex, what I wanted flex, to say. Flex on them. <laughs> um, or, you know, and this book, like I think the, this book is is doing more work in the world than, you know, any any tweets that I could ever send out. So so I think part of it is like thinking more, being more cognizant of like the the evolving ways that throughout our lives we we find different ways to communicate our ideas to the world. Um and I don't you know, I'm I, I don't I don't want to at all like overstate what role I do or don't play in the discourse. Um I don't know. I, I just, I try to say things that are helpful and, and ask questions that other people might be asking and, um, and just do thoughtful, rigorous research and, and, uh, reporting and, um, on, on things that I think matter, you know? Um, and I, and I feel, I feel good about that. And so, you know, first and foremost, I see, I see myself as a writer, you know, a writer and a teacher. Like when I think about my professional as I, professional identities, those are the two things. And I think sometimes people can ascribe other stuff to you, but you know, the only two pieces of that, that I really carry are, are being a writer and, uh, and being a teacher. Um, and if, that's, if, if you're, if you're a teacher, what, would you say is the subject that you teach? Hmm. I mean, you know, so as you know, I was a high school English teacher for for a few years before I started grad school, um, and then was they've been teaching in prisons and jails for the last several years, um, at least until the beginning of the pandemic. I was teaching in DC jail, but haven't been in since beginning of twenty twenty. Unfortunately, given the pandemic, and I have two young. Um, kids, two kids who are too young to be vaccinated. And so, um, you know, I have to be increasingly careful about, you know, the places that I go and things that I do. But so in a, in a practical sense, you know, I was a teacher of, of writing and literature, um, both as a high school teacher and in, in these incarcerated spaces. And, you know, now my teaching is, is mostly tied to, to this book, um, you know, I give, I, I do a lot of virtual events in this virtual age. Um, and, uh, and the cool thing about that is that I can just do more of them, you know, cause I just, I'll, I can do them from my office and don't have to get on a plane and get into Uber and stay at a hotel and do all of that. But, um, but can still talk to folks. And I, you know, I just, I try to teach things that people taught me, you know, I went, I, I did like a four, 
four or five year deep study and excavation of this history and just learn so much, right? I just, I mean, that's the thing. Like I just learned so much and it was so enjoyable and, and powerful and generative and meaningful. And I, I'm just trying to share those lessons that, that I carry, uh, have carried from those last, the, the past four or five years and share them with other people and distill them uh, in ways that people might be able to hear um, and to share them in ways that I think might, um, that maybe other, in, in ways that other people haven't shared before, you know, to take the best of the history that I've read, uh, to take the best of the poems and the novels that I've read, to take the best of the conversations that I've had and to bring all these things together to create something that uh, I hope is is different than, you know, any other book on slavery out there, but is also only possible because of the incredible work of, of other scholars of, um, of slavery, you know, over the past three centuries. Well, I always tell people when they ask me about you that I feel like you are in some ways probably been thrust into a moment in time that needs your voice more than you probably knew going into it, but that it is really cool to see you flourish in all these ways and step up in all these ways and, and be so well received in the voice that you, and, and, the, and the work that you put out. So it's been, been amazing to, to watch. I did, I did want to ask you because, you know, you've come a long way from uh, free word in the in the nine hundred room at at Davidson. What is? Can you share maybe one moment or story for over the past ten ish years that you've you know ascended as as a writer to now being a, a New York Times bestselling author that has kind of blown blown your mind the most? Of wow, I can't believe that happened to me or. Hmm. Oh man, like a single a moment or a story. Honestly, man, I feel like <laughs> I feel like that's been this whole the whole past 6 months. Um I mean the you know the really this book, I I wrote this book and I was like, I think I think this is a pretty good book. I worked my ass off putting this book together and I feel really proud of it. But I just could have never I could have never imagined if you had told me the, that my book would be a, be a new, number one New York Times bestseller, I would have been like, shut up. I, would have been, I mean, that just seems, it seems ridiculous. And so that that hap- the fact that that happened, I remember my editor and my agent called me because uh, the list, the New York Times list comes out every Wednesday uh, at like 5 or 6 p.m. And they called me uh, and they were just screaming. They were just like screaming and they were like, you're number one, you're number one. And I like fell out of my chair and I was just like screaming a bunch of, I wasn't, I was like mumbling a bunch of expletives because my children were in the next room watching Daniel Tiger. Um, and I was just like, man, this is real. Like, this is real. And in some ways it still feels surreal. I mean, and, and it's just been a set of ongoing things like that. When the couple of weeks ago, when the New York Times named it one of the top 10 books of the year, I mean, like I've read that list every single year for the past like 12 or 15 years to figure out what books I should be reading. It's like, oh, what are the top 10 books this year? Um, 
Yeah, maybe go go ahead and reread your own book this year. Huh? Man, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's uh, but it's just it's just surreal, man. It's just it's so it's just a surreal thing. In just today, so I saw a tweet that you know College of Charleston is making every freshman next year read it. Um, and you know, I'm like, man, I remember when I was coming to Davidson, and they were like, you know, everybody has to read this book, and so it's I I just feel more. I just feel luckier than I can even say. Um, and in the past six months, I feel like it's just been, you know, moments like that one after the other. I was just like, holy shit, holy shit, this is bananas. Um, so, yeah, I just feel really lucky. Well, you, you deserve it, man. So, so happy for you. I appreciate it. I, I like to end these before I toss it over to, to Stanley to find out uh, what I missed. I like to end these by asking, I've asked the same question on, on every episode and we've gotten some really good answers. So I'm curious what a life well lived means to you. Hmm. I'll give this answer because sometimes like I talk about this when people ask me, like if I'm, if I'm hopeful and I think that this is related and it's related to, and I, talk about this in the book, but I think the first enslaved people came to the British colonies that would become the United States in 1619. The Emancipation Proclamation signed in 1863, Civil War ended in 1865. That means, but from the moment that black people were brought to this country and enslaved, they were fighting for freedom from 1619 onwards. But what that also means is that the vast majority of people who fought for freedom never got a chance to see it. But they fought for it anyway because they knew that someday someone would. And I think about how my life is only possible because of people who fought for something that they knew they would never see themselves, but they fought for it anyway because they knew that someday some person they never meet would benefit from their work. And I think about what sort of responsibility that bestows upon me to attempt to build the sort of world that I think we all deserve to live in, but also to work towards something that I know I might never see myself or that my kids might never see or that their kids might never see, that people I, can, I can't even conceive of won't even see. Because the work of... of Building a better world is an intergenerational project, and you don't always get to experience the fruits of your labor. But that doesn't mean that your work is for naught. It it means that we are all we are all here chipping away at this wall, and we don't know if the wall is six inches thick or six thousand miles thick. But the more you chip away at it, the less you know the person who comes after you will have to chip away at. And ultimately, one day. We don't know when that is, you know, people will chip away and, and uh, see the light on the other side of that wall. And I think that that's, you know, a life well spent is a life chipping away at that wall, even if you don't know how thick that wall is. Um, and that's part of the black social and intellectual uh, and spiritual tradition. But it's also in, in so many ways part of the human experience, right? Like, oh, that's that's we are all all of our lives are possible because of things that people did who came before us, who, who never, 
knew who we were, who would, you know, had no way of knowing who we would be. And, and so when I think of a life well lived, you know, it's, it's trying to build a better world, even if you might not see it yourself. Um, but knowing that someday someone will. That was beautiful. I love that. And such a powerful analogy to think about in terms of how to make, make sure our lives are, are meaningful while, while, while we still have them. So Clint, I, at this point, I turn it over to my, my colleague, Stanley, who usually asks a couple of great questions that I forgot to ask. So, so Stanley, tell me, tell me what I missed. Well, I don't know if there's anything that you missed, but I did have a couple of follow-up questions. So um, early on, you talked about the, you made a comment, something like, you know, it wasn't a straight line from the, the color gray poem to being a writer. It sounds like you've listened to a lot of other people's stories. I would imagine you've done a lot of interviews in which they want you to tell them a narrative about your life. I'm curious how you approach constructing a narrative after the fact, especially when life can oftentimes be random, um, even though we want to assign a, a clean, clear story. How, how do you, how do you approach that? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, I think it's, it's tempting to like go back and, and tell this like very clear linear story about like this happened and then that happened and that led me to this and this led me to that. And, and that's a story that I can tell. And it's a story that's not wholly untrue, right? Like that story would probably include, um, you know, how when I was a senior in high school, Hurricane Katrina came and, you know, my home was under 10 feet of water and it destroyed our house. And I finished high school in uh, a school in Houston, Texas. And that's that me going to Houston and is what led me to Davidson. And then, um, you know, obviously if I had never gone to Davidson, what, you know, I'm, I'm very into the, this idea of, of chaos theory and like the butterfly effect. Right. And that like, you know, this one moment or this one thing happened and then it put your life on a different trajectory. I think that that is true. I think what's also true is that it's not just those big moments like Hurricane Katrina. It's a series of of tiny, the whole con- construct of the butterfly effect is that it's a series of tiny things, right? It's a butterfly flapping its wings in the crustaceous period that, you know, sets your life on a different tra- tra- trajectory than it otherwise would have been. Um, and so it, a lot of it is stuff you never see. So it's in some ways we can tell a story about our lives, but that's only the things that we know, right? Because so much of what shape our lives are things that we have no idea about. Um, but I think a lot about this uh, this line from one of Alfred Lord Tennyson's poems, uh, his poem, Ulysses. And he says, I am a part of all that I have met. And if there was like a thesis statement to my life and the way that I think about, you know, how we end up being who we are, it's that, right? Like you, we are uh, a confluence and an amalgam of all the people we've met, all the conversations we've had, all the experiences we've had. And and it's hard to like quantify or define how much those things have or have not shaped you. Um, but they all have, you know, in profound ways. Um, so, you know, I, I think you have to move through the world with some level of humility to say that like, you know, there's a certain narrative that you can construct about your life, but there's also just a bunch of stuff you don't know um, that you have no control over. And that, but for the arbitrary nature of birth and circumstance, you know, any of our lives could look very different than they, than they do. 
I, I heard this thing a couple of weeks ago to, to that end, Clint, that wasn't nearly as poetic as you described it, but it was just nothing is wasted. Mm. Everything that happens to you, mm-hmm. good, bad, whatever, builds towards whatever the next thing is or whatever the continuous morphing of your life and personality is, which I really like. Yeah, I think just that's exactly Everything right. that happens to you is, is building. Uh, so, so part of that narrative that you did mention about yourself was having to deal with or wrestle with Clint, the soccer player, and maybe no longer being that person. Mm. Do you, given that experience, do you try to manage or downplay to yourself, Clint, the writer, so you don't end up there again? Mm. Or do you, are you fully embracing that? Oh, that's interesting. I've never thought of it that way. Um, I don't know that I try to downplay i think because i didn't try to downplay it you know from age five to 18 right but i was all in i thought i was going to be the next thierry Henry. i had my arsenal jerseys on the wall i was ready i was like i'm gonna live in a mansion in london i'm gonna be making all these euros like it's gonna be it's gonna be amazing um and then you grow up and you realize that louisiana is not a hotbed of soccer talent against which to measure your skills and so you uh you are humbled as you as you grow older but like you're you're in it when i was you know when i'm 15 years old and thinking that i'm the best you know soccer player in the game i'm not like well i should temper my expectations because you really don't you know i don't want to uh i don't know what will you know life will bring on the other side of this i think you just part of the joy of being in love with something and obsessed with something is that you you don't um, do anything. You just kind of lean into it, right? And you just are like, this is where I am. This is what brings me joy. This is what brings me meaning. This is what brings me purpose. And you lean into that. And I think of, I think of writing the same way. I mean, you know, who knows, who knows what my life will look like in another 10 years. I mean, like if you had told me 10 years ago, what my life would look like now, I would just, I wouldn't, there's no chance I would believe you. And so, you know, I love writing. And I feel very lucky to have found the thing that I hope that I can do for the rest of my life. Um, but, you know, in 10 years, maybe I want to be an acoustic guitar player. I don't know. You know, like it's uh, you just don't know. And I think it's, again, that level of humility to say, like, I don't know, but this is this is where I am and who I am now. But I think the other side of that. To your point, it's interesting as I'm as I've never been asked this question before, but as I'm saying it, I'm thinking through it. I think also what happens, and I think part of this is having a family, is that my identity is not singularly tied to my profession in that way. Right? Like whereas when I was a kid, I was like soccer, soccer, soccer. That's all like that's what mattered most to me. And even before I had a family, I think I defined myself by like institutions I was a part of or schools I went to or uh, things that I did. And then I think you, you know, I have a, a wife that I love more than anything in the world. I have two kids who I, you know, a four-year-old and a two-year-old who I think are, are like the most hilarious, delightful, silliest things on, on the earth. Um, and like being a good father and being a good partner and being a good son, those are the things that 
define me, right? So like part of it is that my sense of self is not as tethered to writing in a way that would create the same level of existential crisis, I think, um, because I try to be proactive in making sure that I remind myself always that, you know, my value and who I am is not defined by the New York Times list or any prize or award or, you know, media institution. It's, it's defined by being a good dad and being a good husband. So the, you talked about never having expected to be in this place 10 years ago, um, 10 years from now, I know you don't know who you're going to be, but you know, what do you think, what's something that you wished in 10 years that you would have put in this book? What's something that I wish in 10 years that I would have put in this book? Yeah. Or maybe even now, I guess, now that the book's out. Like what's something I wish I could have included? Yeah, that you didn't. The only thing that I think I would have liked to include that I didn't is a chapter on slavery in California. Um, I think that the book is like does the East Coast, it does the Northwest, it does the South. I would have loved to do a chapter on, yeah, slavery in California, because I think people have no idea about it, just like slavery in the West in general, and the relationship between slavery and the and the gold rush. Um, I think there's so much to be excavated there. And, and you know, so many incredible scholars have done uh, great work on there. And so it would have been, it would have been good to, to, you know, go there and go to some of those historical sites related to that history. And I think it would have made the book an even fuller account of, uh, of the history that I was trying to tell. Um, but by the time I realized that I wanted to go out there, you know, we were in the midst of a pandemic. And so there was no more reporting to be done. I finished my reporting in New York city, maybe like two weeks before the country shut down. Um, and, uh, so I'm glad, you know, there's another version of this where like, I didn't finish all the reporting for the book and, and the book just, I have to wait until, you know, I can travel again to, to finish it. But fortunately I, I did all the reporting. And so it's, you know, once the pandemic came, it was just a matter of writing it all up. Um, but, uh, yeah, it would have been, you know, I think the book is what it's supposed to be and, and I'm, I'm thrilled with it and happy with it. But if there was one thing I could have added, I think it would have been that. All right. So what, one final question here before we move on to the next section, you mentioned, I think it was when one of your you know poetry slams, uh, you talked about the diversity of people there. So obviously race, but also age. And I think there was academic discipline, a number of different things. From your perspective, and as a segue to the next section, what is the most undervalued type or form of diversity in your life? What is the most, say it one more time. Undervalued type of diversity. So obviously most mm. people don't think of diversity, they think of race, right. but you mentioned academic discipline, yeah. ge- geography. Hmm. I would probably say... In my own, I mean, in my own life, I don't know. I would probably say the thing that people that generally doesn't get as much acknowledgement is, and, you know, it goes full circle to what we were talking about before, but, like, just disability. Um, And, like, I think that there's so many, because disability looks, it doesn't just look like cerebral palsy, right? Like, disability, there are people who are living living with chronic disabilities 
you know, million, I mean, tens of millions of people living with chronic disabilities in this country, um, hundreds of millions, you know, across the world. And there's not really like a space for people to talk about it in like a public way. Um, I think that's changed a little bit with with COVID because I think now people are talking about long COVID and like long COVID has opened up this space to talk about chronic illness in a new way. Um, but, but I would say that, you know, people living with all sorts of different disabilities, um, whether they be physical or, um, you know, mental illness, um, you know, we're, we're doing a better job than we've done before, but, um, but I think that there's, uh, that is a space that could use more, more of a, a, could be more central in our, in our public discourse around what diversity does and doesn't look like. Okay. Uh, so the next section is called overrated, underrated. I'm going to throw out a, an idea, a phrase, a word, and you tell us if you think it's overrated or underrated mm. or appropriately rated. Um, and you're also welcome to pass if you want. All right. Uh, jazz music. Are we saying overrated or underrated by who? Like by the world, by society? That's up to you. Okay, interesting. By you. We, we care about your perspective, Clint. Okay, interesting. Jazz. I mean, jazz is underrated. You can't overrate jazz. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, then obviously the next one has to be Steph Curry. Oh, man. I mean... The problem is giving short answers to all this. It's just bananas. Like we could have just done a Steph Curry podcast, but like we should, man, we should. can you, could you have, I mean, underrated. So I saw Stephen A. Smith who was like, is Steph Curry re- like, is he the, it wasn't like, is he better than LeBron James? No, it was, it was like, like, is he more, more revolutionary to the game of basketball? And I was like, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, it's, it is so bananas that we went to school with this man. It is so bananas that like Steph was always very good. Very, very good. Blew up 2008. One of the most fun sporting events of my life was like watching our trip, you know, our journey to the elite eight stuff of legends. But I could have never imagined that he would be like one of the best basketball players of all time. Like that's, I mean, he is one of the best people to ever play basketball in the history of planet Earth, and that is wild. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. We gotta, we gotta have a separate uh, Steph Steph Curry oh, yeah. episode with just we'll get we'll get you we'll get Aaron back on maybe maybe we'll get uh Bryant and maybe even Steph to join us but we we should we should have that conversation Clint it's bananas man i'm so proud of him he's such a before the pandemic and stuff whenever i got out to the bay um we would try to see each other which was mostly him giving me giving me a ticket to the game and then trying to wave um afterwards but but like you know just a good dude too and that's the cool thing about all of it like you know it he's just a good a good guy. Um, and so good person. He, he totally deserves it. Underrated because he's, he's the goat out here. Move over LeBron. See ya. <laughs> All right. 16 year old Clint. Oh, uh, overrated, overrated because 16 year old Clint really thought he knew everything there was to know. I remember having a moment when I was 16 and be like, I get it. 
I was like, I get it. I understand the world. My mom's like, you don't understand the world. I was like, no. She thinks I don't understand, but I understand. And I really believed it. I have this moment when I was in my gar- like, like this weird specific moment where I was like in the garage and after like I got punished for something and they were just like, and I, I just remember saying like, they don't, they don't understand that I understand. Like I get, you know, I'm on a different threshold, but I wasn't, I was just 16 and um. Uh, All right. So what, what about current day Clint though? Is current day Clint overrated or underrated? Probably overrated. Um, people are, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still just a, a dad pretending to be a brachiosaurus, you know, trying to figure out, figure out the world. Um, so that's funny because one of my one of my questions here was dressing up as Santa. Dress is dressing up as Santa overrated or underrated? Uh, I I did dress up as Santa for my kids last year. And that was, it was, it was very fun for my son. It, my daughter was scared. <laughs> and so she would say that it was overrated. My son would say underrated because he would, he would want me to dress up as Santa 365 days of the year. As a, as a new parent, I have a feeling I'm going to go through, we're going to go through a lot of highly overrated and highly underrated moments. Oh man, it's, that's, that's, that's it. That's it. Uh, Arsenal. Heartbreak, devastation, trickery. Thierry Henry tricked me into this team in 2000, like in 2001, like 20 years ago. And I was like, wow, I love this team. And I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I didn't know the emotional turbulence of the ride. Um, Is Arsenal overrated or underrated? I mean, yeah, I go over. Well, but I still love them so much, despite all the heartache they put me through. Um, let's say, let's say there's a, uh, a, an intentional indifference, right? To protect my, to protect my sense of self. That's a pass. That's a pass. That's a pass. It's somewhere between a pass and an appropriately rated. All right. <laughs> all right uh, the written word. Overrated because the spoken yeah for we and we had the written word didn't exist until the fifth, mid the advent of the printing press in the mid fifteenth century and for most of human civilization we told stories you know through oral oral stories and oral histories so the spoken word is underrated then that was the next the one spoken word is underrated absolutely all right and then finally book reviews overrated. Uh, they're great when you get great ones. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. Like I, I, you know, with this book, like the reviews have been largely really amazing and, um, I'm so grateful for them. I'm also cognizant of the fact that it won't, like, it might not always be like that. You know, my next book, people might be like, oh, dang, this wasn't how the word is passed. It's like how I, it might be how, like, I felt about all Kanye's albums after graduation. <laughs> it's just like, man, he just, it'll never be the, the Kanye, those first three albums. Um, and so, you know, they might be like, just to be, just to be clear, you're, you're Kanye in this scenario, right? Well, just for the, just for the <laughs> metaphor, let's, let's not, this is not an extended metaphor or, or some, some Freudian thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think book reviews are, are, 
are great when you get good ones and they suck when you get bad ones. And so, um, but their, their importance is overrated because it goes back to what we were saying before. Like you can't define the, you can't define the success of your book from things like book reviews or list or awards. It, you have to define that for yourself. So as a reader, do you read less book reviews now? I find the best the best book review. I mean, there are a few that I read. Um, I mean, like I already, I often read reviews by the Times, and you know, uh, but honestly, the the book reviews I pay attention to most are like the just recommendations from friends. You know, it's like, oh, this person told me to read this, or this person posted, you know, who I like posted about this book on Instagram, or this part. You know, those are the things that I that lead me to books. Um, just conversations and with people that I. I know and like and whose taste I enjoy. All right. Well, with that, Zip, I'll pass Kanye back over to you. Careful, careful, Clint. See, now, now, now you've got, now you've got a, a pseudonym for yourself oh, already. Um, so we, we like to end these just with one simple would you rather question. So my would you rather question for you, would you rather only be able to read or only be able to write? Only be able to read. No question. No question. I mean, what is a writer without being able to read? You know, I mean, like for me, I can't imagine. I mean, being a reader comes first and foremost, um, both, you know, because I can't I couldn't write without reading. Um, and also, I just enjoy books a lot. Right. Like, I think I enjoy I enjoy read. I think I enjoy reading more than I enjoy writing. I like writing a lot. For sure, but like, if I can only do one for the rest of my life, I definitely read. So we've gone from Clint the soccer player to Clint the writer to Clint the reader. There we go. Clint, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for for making time for it. Yeah, so, so appreciate it. it.